My name is Anna Orberry. I'm Johanna Tilkanen. And I'm Ben Horton. And you're listening to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. Hello, I'm Anna Orberry and welcome to this bonus episode of The Climate Briefing. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Professor Tim Benton, who is Research Director of Emerging Risks and Director of the Energy, Environment and Resources Programme here at Chatham House. Great to have you on the podcast, Tim. Thank you very much for talking to us. Hello, Anna. So in this episode, Tim and I are going to be discussing the relationship between climate change and COVID-19. But before we kick off, I'd just like to say that we are recording this from our homes. So the sound quality might not always be 100% perfect, but the content, on the other hand, would be super interesting. So please do keep on listening. So, Tim, I've already revealed in the introduction that there is a link between climate change and COVID-19. But perhaps you could tell us a little bit about what this relationship actually looks like? Gosh, what a big question. Well, I think the link between the two is forwards and backwards. So in the forwards direction, there is a causative element in the way that climate change and environmental degradation more generally are disrupting ecologies. And if you think about it, pathogens, bacteria, viruses and so on, their evolutionary job is to infect susceptible individuals. And there's nothing a pathogen likes more than being able to jump species because it's jumping into a population which is full of susceptible individuals. And there are many kind of ecological and evolutionary ecological issues that govern the speed with which microbes and pathogens in general jump between species. But where you disrupt ecologies, you are more likely to provide the conditions by which diseases can emerge. And if you couple the climate change, which is effectively changing the environmental envelope in which a species lives, as the climate changes, then most species envelopes are moving towards the poles. So you've got in species migration and different species migrate at different rates. So you're changing the rate at which animals, reservoirs, pathogens, vectors all interact. You're changing the environment as we cut down rainforest and other issues. So you're crunching animals together in new ways. And then at the same time with uh, urbanisation, we're squeezing more people into tighter spaces and people are interacting with wildlife in different ways. Within cities, you have green spaces that are increasingly infected by or occupied by birds and rats and foxes and mongoose and all sorts of thing, other things, bats in some situations. And people on the edge of cities, particularly in the tropics, go into the countryside around them and get bushmeat to sell on local markets. All of those things are providing the breeding grounds for which diseases emerge. And, you know, uh, I was a co-author on the IPCC special report on climate change and food and land. And one of the things that we reviewed in that is the literature for plant pests and diseases and animal pests and diseases to change with climate change. And human pests and diseases are part and parcel of that. So on the one hand, environmental change is creating the situation by which disruptions to our economies are arising through issues like COVID. And on the other hand, of course, once you have a disruption to our economies like COVID, you're then impeding the way that we, or stimulating the way that we might change our economic situation to mitigate climate change or adapt to climate change. So as our economies have slowed down, as we've deconstructed our way of doing things, 
clearly, as we've been locked down, we're not using transport so much, we're not using energy so much, our emissions have receded, our air is clearer, our water is clearer, wildlife are coming into towns because they're undisturbed. And then as we look ahead over the next few years, we're seeing the potential for eye-watering amounts of money to be put in towards green reconstruction. The question then becomes, can we, to use the common phrase at the moment, can we build back better? Can we build, take advantage of the fact we've deconstructed our economies to build an economic transformation towards something that drives climate change and environmental sustainability in a new way? So that's a question about whether we'll be able to do it. To summarise, climate change and environmental breakdown have made the emergence of COVID perhaps more likely, and the emergence of COVID has changed the way that we we might mitigate or adapt to climate change by destroying, deconstructing our economies. And the open question is whether we can do it better as we reconstruct economies and make more progress than we would have done towards climate change targets. So what would that response actually look like, more concretely? In your view, what would be an optimal green recovery response? Well, I mean, I did a calculation the other day, which is at one level very superficial and trivial, but is quite meaningful at, a, at another level. And that is, according to the IMF, or at least last week, $8 trillion have been promised for broadly economic recovery packages. Now, $8 trillion is the equivalent of something like 35 times the maximum total mitigation potential on an annualised basis in 2030 if we pulled every single climate change lever that we possibly could, according to a McKinsey report a a few years ago. So what we're talking about in terms of economic reconstruction or economic stimulus now is such a huge amount of money. It is much, 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 much larger than anybody's ever imagined to be possible from a climate change mitigation perspective, that actually it makes climate change look relatively good value compared to rebuilding the economy. So so what might this entail? This might entail supporting industries that are more low carbon rather than knee-jerk reporting industries that just are high high for employment. And I was interested to see that the French government have uh, said with respect to Air France that they will only bail out Air France if they don't compete with small, with short train journeys in France, if it's a, a journey that you can undertake in two, two and a half hours or something like that, the government's not going to allow Air France to fly because mm. those two things are non-equivalent in terms of carbon. Uh, you can imagine much more investment in electric cars, electric car infrastructures, smart green, smart smart grids, renewable energy, new ways of stimulating working from home so you don't have to commute and the carbon costs that come from commuting, etc, etc. There are many ways that you can think about it. Fiscal stimulus that point in the direction of generating green jobs rather than grey jobs. Less investment in solid grey concrete infrastructure, more investment in smarter infrastructure, uh, fewer roads, fewer airports, and, you know, and so on. There's a lot in that space. And clearly, you know, there is a lot of kind of peripheral stuff. If we're going to move towards a low carbon future, we have to get our zero net land use targets right, our zero net economy. Where does land use fit in? There are elements there to do with uh, dietary change, land use change, farming change, and so on. So it's not all about energy and cars and transport. It's a much wider 
issue than that. So there's a lot of talk about it. I mean, you read about it in the news all the time and you mentioned France, but is your perception that a lot of countries are actually undertaking these kind of green stimulus measures or is it mainly something that they are talking about at the moment but not actually doing? <laughs> I think it's mainly something that the commentariat are talking about. I, I think certainly from some governments, there is a unwillingness to talk about the opportunities for green transformation at the time when so many people are being hurt directly and there are so much uncertainties about jobs. You know, if people are thinking, am I going to have a job to go back to? And then government at the same time says, well, no, we're going to abolish all of these industries and invest in those industries. And of course, that makes the hit much harder from a, a people's perspective. But there are lots of people, lots of leaders, some governments who are actively saying, we've got to recognise that if we don't deal with climate change in the long run, we're going to have more events like COVID. We can't afford to rebuild back exactly the way it was beforehand because this will just happen again in five years' time or 10 years' time. And climate impacts, climate being a threat multiplier, is going to create a whole range of other issues like this. So somehow we've got to do much better in the long run. And the UN Secretary General said last week, you know, exactly these things we can't afford not to take this opportunity to take a step forward towards dealing with climate change, given we're going to invest so much in our economies over the next two, three, four, five years. Sure. And it's possible to combine it, right? Both job creation and green investments. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, you can see many places where those become a harmonious coupling. If we are reconstructing the economy, let's reconstruct the economy as much as possible to be circular rather than linear. If we are reconstructing the economy, let's reconstruct the economy to be as far as possible low carbon rather than high carbon and so on. And all of those give us potential for doing things in new ways. The issue has always been before COVID that, oh no, we can't do that sort of thing, it's too expensive. But suddenly we find ourselves in the situation where we have to spend enormous amounts of money and spending enormous amounts of money, let's do it right. Is a link being made between the deployment of green stimulus measures and the new or updated nationally determined contributions? I mean, obviously some people or some countries are actively thinking this through at the moment. I think, in a sense, that's one of the silver linings of COP26 and the assessment of the putting forward of new NDCs and uh, their appraisal of progress. One of the advantages of that being put ahead is that it gives us a bit more breathing space or gives countries a bit more breathing space to think through these issues in a new and concrete way. Had we gone ahead with COP26 in November, assuming that we're out of lockdown, by that time, it wouldn't have give, given countries enough time really to assimilate what our plans are for economic reconstruction, I think. As you said, the COP has been postponed until next year. How do you think the UK and Italy should uh, use this time in the best way to encourage countries to increase climate ambition? I think the key thing is to recognise that the two issues are linked. Climate change is throwing up uh, society-threatening impacts and will increasingly do that as a threat multiplier. And whether or not 
we can ever prove that COVID is related to environmental disruption, just like whether or not we can ever prove a particular storm or heat wave is directly created by climate change. No, of course you can't, but you can create a it's more likely scenario under environmental change. What we need to do is recognise the two things are linked and not fall back into the situation that we think each crisis is independent and medicalise COVID, oh, it's a disease, and drive our responses to climate change in a yet another way and think about biodiversity loss in a third way, recognise that all of these things are related together and create momentum towards rebuilding the economy in a green way. I think the kind of worst case situation that will be is if we have six months where we just worry about COVID door to door to door to door to door. Every time you open a newspaper or look at the news, it's all about COVID. And then suddenly in the run up to the COP, we forget COVID and we just think about climate. That will be the kind of worst case. So so from my perspective, it's recognising that the two are linked together And I think irrespective of governments, people will come out of COVID feeling very bruised, very scared, not wanting to repeat this. So there might be an attitudinal change about from people to say, actually, we must take this opportunity. Governments listen to us. And that might provide some more momentum. There was a Ipsos Mori global polling that effectively on a global basis something like 70 75% of the world's population when polled said climate change is as threatening as or more threatening than covid there was an opinion poll in the uk that asked the question do you think climate change should be tackled with the same urgency as covid 48% of people said yes they thought so so i think as we go through the next year or so to to COP26, or maybe a bit longer, depending on when it's finally scheduled, to recognise that all of these things are linked and that we have to think about building a, an economy that is both sustainable and resilient to these shocks and use this as a means of generating more momentum for dealing with climate change. Had COP gone ahead, had COVID not happened, we were looking to see whether or not COP would be a success in any way, shape or form, whether there was enough ambition to deal with climate change. And I think we've got a year where it's starting to be patently obvious that everything's linked together. We need to start building that momentum, raising the ambition. And I would hope that the UK and Italian governments will put quite a lot of effort into recognising that this is not a one-off medical emergency. This is the sort of thing that climate change is going to throw at us. And we can't afford this to happen more than once every 100 years. A lot of developing countries are in a difficult situation at the moment with falling export revenues, falling currencies on top of the health crisis. These countries also need to transition to a more sustainable economy. What do you think is needed to help these countries also achieve a green recovery? The developing world is clearly in a really difficult situation because it's dealing with its own health crisis, it's dealing with its own economic crisis, it's dealing with the issues of low productivity because as labour gets locked down, day-waged labour is not turning up at factories, obviously, it's not producing stuff so it doesn't have stuff to export. And as the rich world spends eye-watering amounts of money on building our economies back up, we perhaps will have less money for aid towards the the south. So all of these things look really bad 
from a low and middle income country perspective. So on top of that, it looks like it's an impossible demand to ask countries to think about not using the cheapest amount of energy based on their existing infrastructure of coal or whatever it else might be. But I think there is a situation where unless we collectively on a global basis deal with climate change, we collectively carry the harms of things going wrong. If COVID or climate impacts, storms, floods, heat waves are felt all around the world, irrespective of where the emissions occurred, we are in a situation where no one wins by only thinking about our economies. And given that we're spending so much money on ourselves, I think there are real opportunities here to maintain our lifestyles of making sure that we are supporting other countries in developing their economies. So not us competing for economic output between a rich world country and a poor world country, and then in in a competitive economic sense, us squashing out the competition of the developing world, but recognising that our future depends on every country being able to survive, not having famines, not having large-scale people movement, not concentrating supply in single countries because they're the best at doing it and uh, therefore cutting prices all the way down, driving uh, consumption-based economies, but recognising instead that the diversity of what the world produces, uh, the sustainability of what the world produces adds to resilience and we need to deal with resilience. So maybe I'm really naive But I think we should be helping the developing world to develop, not develop economically, flatly, just economically, but to develop sustainably as well, because we benefit directly and indirectly from that. So I would like us to be in the situation where the rich world supports the poor world in a much more concrete way, and we don't just navel gaze on our own economies and think the rest of the world is somebody else's problem. It will go away because it won't. What will happen if we don't integrate climate change considerations into the response to the economic impacts of COVID-19 and we don't build back better then, but just build back to the way it was before? So with complex systems, what tends to happen when you put them under pressure is that they stay the same for a long time and then suddenly the straw that breaks the camel's back causes the system to reconfigure and it goes from one state to another state and becomes stable again. What we've found with COVID is that despite us being told, oh, it's too difficult to change, the system's locked in, uh, any change is going to be marginal, it's almost impossible to imagine change. What we've done in three months is deconstructed the system. We're now in a situation where for the first time in my life, you can see the potential for very rapid systemic change. If we don't get this right and we just build back to where we were beforehand, we will recreate the resilience, the lock-in to the way of doing things, and we will lose the opportunity, I think, over the next 30 or 40 years to make significant progress on climate change. So my gut feeling is if we do not make the most of this opportunity nasty as it is, we will miss our ability to get anywhere close to Paris targets and we'll be looking towards uh, multiple degrees of climate change in the second half of the century with all of the pain and chaos that that will bring. 
Thank you very much, Tim, for these interesting insights. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Anna. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of The Climate Briefing. We'll be back in two or three weeks' time with a new episode, which will focus on climate finance. All the previous episodes of the podcast are available on the Chatham House website, on iTunes, and on Spotify. Have a nice day.